Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we celebrate stories of resilience. We're talking with Adam Blakeney, who helps guide people through their stories of resilience. Silver medalist in his own right in the 800 in Sydney, he has led 44 or 44 medals, right? From not not 44 athletes, but 44 medals in three Paralympic games. So almost 15 medals from the University of Illinois in each game, each of the last three Paralympic games. Adam, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. This is awesome. I love what you're doing with the track guys. I've got to go back a little bit though, just to just to you and figure out mm-hmm. some of the mentality because you were you were definitely one of the toughest guys on the track. I mean, it's just like, like you never stopped. You never quit. Is that, is that a wrestling mentality? Cause you were wrestling in college, right? Did you bring that mentality to wheelchair racing? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was my former life. Yeah. As, as uh, uh, wrestling, I, I think so certainly to training and just the, uh, this idea of, of probably not a, a, a very good, um, philosophy to have in, in racing but it, but if I wasn't if I wasn't suffering and, and bleeding a little bit then I probably wasn't working hard enough and doing what I need to do to win <laughs> so see I've, I've grown out of that as I've I've aged I certainly don't don't coach that way but um uh, but but yeah that was that was certainly was uh my my intent was always that if uh if I lost a race if I lost um and I lost um it wouldn't be because the, the person that beat me didn't suffer a little bit, didn't suffer a little bit. And so, um, um, and, uh, and I think I always, I always prided myself, um, you know, certainly as, uh, in reference to the 800 meter, um, silver, um, you know, I, it, it was, that was the idea was that I was going to go out of the front and, and beat myself into the ground. And, and if anybody was able to beat me, then I'd, I'd tip my hat to him. So. And you, I remember listening, you, I remember listening to that, you, that you just let up just, just a moment in that 800. Mm-hmm. And that's when Coleman, Coleman went by you. Is that, is that how yeah, that he, worked? Yeah. Yeah, he, he did. He, uh, yeah, he got me just, just by inches, by inches, but, um, and he was, he was, he was young. He was young. And, and, uh, I think that was his first, uh, first games, if I'm not mistaken and, and, uh, really talented, uh, young man, um, and, uh, and a great sprinter and, uh, um, knew, knew what he had to do and, and, and he executed it. So, um, yeah, as I, We've lost, uh, we, we've lost the uh, sound. Can you still hear me? Oh, I got you. Yeah, okay. sorry. Did that, oh, did that break out? It broke out a little bit. Yeah, so I don't know what oh, happened. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, it's all good. Yeah, it's yeah, all I'm good. Sorry. So, so what you learned as an athlete, I would imagine, I mean, one, you were able to, to work with Marty Morris, right? Who's, who's one of, if not mm-hmm. pr- probably the greatest wheelchair uh, wheelchair track coach. So, so you learned from the best, but then you also learned, as you said, you learned some painful lessons as an athlete. Taking both of those perspectives, how has that shaped the way that you work as a coach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, certainly, Marty was a was a significant uh, influence and in, and. In, uh, and how I coach, and and certainly the, the I mean the, the foundational knowledge of of of, uh, of training methodology, and then um, was uh, tied directly to, to Marty, and uh, and I have so I have no academic degrees in in, um, in sports science or, or or kinesiology. I'm I'm an English lit major, and I got my master's degree in journalism, um, but I always felt like I, I got a uh, another degree, informal degree uh on and in, in an apprenticeship under marty and uh and so i you know i was always really curious as to as to the why and, and the methodology behind behind the training and and um, you know why why are we training this way on monday and this way on wednesday and why are these workouts uh they seem to have some linear relationship to this workout and why is that 
Um, and I, I, I always felt that the more formed I was as an athlete, then, then uh, the better an athlete I, I could be. Um, and, uh, and Marty was a great, a great teacher. And, uh, so he, uh, and I, you know, he enjoyed talking through the, the process and, and, uh, and he had a, a, a library of books on his, his, uh, shelf in his office and he'd give me a book to read and I'd, I'd read it and we'd discuss it or he'd share articles, um, in, in the research, um, read through and discuss. And, and I think just for me, it was, it was, uh, a curiosity and, and, uh, just to have a, a, an understanding of, of, uh, of the the logic and and uh, as I said the methodology behind uh, behind the process of of training and skill acquisition, um, so um, yeah. But then I think too, as you said, pointing to you know I learned a lot too from uh, uh, in terms of with racing from from my peers and and from all the athletes that I competed against, trained with yourself included, and and uh, um, I think one of the richest experiences I had was living uh, in Atlanta uh, after I graduated from uh, with my master's degree, I moved down and, and to Atlanta and uh, trained almost on a daily basis with Scott Hollenbeck. And, uh, um, and, and he is such a rich resource of, of uh, knowledge. And, and, uh, um, and, and I, I, there, there aren't very many um, better tacticians than Scott. Uh, and, and so to be on the, the track with him training, um, I was said really on a daily basis for two years. I mean, that, that was such a huge, huge influence and uh, opportunity for me. Um, but also, you know, I've always, my, my mentality always is that there's always another piece of information to learn. And, and um, so you, 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 you're open and receptive to, to that information and, and you have to have a filter too. So you, you have to filter out the information that may not be useful, but um but I think if you position yourself in that mindset, then you open the opportunity to to learn new things because there's always um, new things to be learned. And and um, I mean, the often said is that you know the longer that you're in it, the, the less that you know. And and it's, it, it can't be more true. I mean that the and so um, um, and so there is. It's been a continuing process from when I started in the sport in 1995 and to to this point. Um, and so, um, what was this year like this, this had to yeah, this, be a crazy mm-hmm. year to be a coach. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very unique, uh, in, in respect from the time we went in, uh, under lockdown in, in March of, of 2020, um, you know, really through the last month when, when we didn't have any competitions, uh, for the athletes to, to key on and, and, which meant from a training standpoint, the way you organize training typically keys off of, of uh, uh, competitions. And, and uh, so this was uh, unique for me in terms of, of organizing and applying uh, training loads to the athletes um, without my typical seasonal structure to work off of and my typical quad structure to work off of. And so what I, my approach was to use that as an opportunity to train for us, December, January, February, March. Um, so during those months, and certainly more so in January through, through March, um, the, we, we do a lot more volume and, and, uh, and um, a little more intensity too, in terms of how that matches into the volume. Um, with the idea that the athletes will be, be a little fatigued and, that, and that's okay. We, and, um, and primarily because during that, that time, we don't necessarily have any um, competitions in which they need to be uh, a little less fatigued and, and, and a little sharper for. Um, and so um, really that's what it became. It became an extended off season to dig in and develop what I th- thought were some opportunities for, for uh, improvement for each of the athletes and, um, um, but that's not to say it was easy. It, it, it's, it's difficult when you don't have that, that more near-term uh, race to key on and, and, and uh, lock in on um, as an athlete. But, but I'll say that, you know, the athletes that really bought in and dug in and, and uh, anchored themselves in, in, the, in the foundational work, um, they've thrived and, and they've, they've, they're very much benefited um, in, uh, in the past month. Well, you have some great athletes. So, like, so, so Daniel Romanchuk is one of your athletes. And back in, 
back in Rio, back before Rio, I heard you heard you say that that he was going to be the greatest or one of the greatest wheelchair athletes. And in Rio, he he did similar to what he might do in Tokyo, where 100, 200, 400, 800, 1500, 5000 and the marathon. But he didn't he didn't make any finals in in Rio, whereas we assume that he will make at least some, if not all of the finals and potentially, I mean, he's, he's a potential winner in any one of those races where he gets to the line. What made you say back then that he was going to be one of the greatest ever or possibly, did you say the greatest or, or do you remember? <laughs> no, I, I don't. I would, I, I'd typically hedge on things like that. And I would say one of, <laughs> <laughs> one of, yeah, but he certainly is, is, incredibly talented and uh and, and i it, so I, i've known him um since i i think he was 16 i'm i'm terrible with with uh remembering dates and times but um he moved out to champagne as uh so we're uh the university of illinois we're the um u.s uh, olympic paralympic committee national training site for wheelchair track and and uh as such, we're, we're able to um, bring in athletes like Daniel, um, who, who we think have potential and, and they can spend time training. And, and uh, so I, I agree. So uh, Kath Sellers, who was my performance director at the time, had asked me, hey, what do you think about having Daniel come out and do some training with you? And, and um, of course, I agreed. Um, he had, uh, I knew he was a great, great young man and had a great family. Um, and uh, um, so I knew he would fit in well with, with the, with the team. Um, so he, 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 uh, he moved out. I, and so he, I said, well, I didn't realize he was moving here. Uh, but they, you know, they would stay for an extended period of time. Um, and, uh, and he would train with the team, um, which was, which was welcome. And, and, uh, and, and we, you know, we've, we've enjoyed having him, uh, as he's, uh, moved into uh, from that age into now now college age. Um, so, anyways, that doesn't answer your question. The the uh, I think what what we what uh, what I saw and really I mean I, it wasn't just me. I think anyone who watched him on a daily basis knew it, at some point his he was going to achieve um, a really high ceiling of performance and and uh, and it, it, it the the most distinguishing factor is, is, is his wingspan, which, um, I miss almost seven foot. And, and, uh, um, but why then, is that is it, significant? You mm, know, mm -hmm. why is that significant? It is. Yeah. So, so what that allows is, is, so it creates a longer lever arm and allows him to, um, and I'm not a physicist, um, but it allows him to, to apply force more effectively. Um, and, and what that then does, Two is allows him to run a larger handring diameter and use it effectively. So it's it's um so anyone like you or I could could run a, a seventeen and a half inch handring, um, but we wouldn't re we wouldn't really be able to use it optimally. Uh, it just wouldn't match up well with the ratio of our our, our limb length. Um, but uh, and I because you're I think you have about the same size arms as me, which is about a fourteen and a half inch. Uh, Tailored for about a or suited for about a 14 and a half inch hand ring. So Daniel uses 17 and a half inch hand rings, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think that's what he's, what he's on now. Um, but what that so what that allows him to do is he's able to effectively and actively apply force to the wheel longer per each revolution of the wheel um, than anyone else in the world. So that, I don't know if I say that in a way that makes sense, but he's actively applying force for more distance than anyone else in the world is. Um, so if you have a, say you have a 14 and a half inch ring and you're pushing half of the circumference, um, the distance you travel per active contact is gonna be less than Daniel, who's pushing half the circumference or a little bit more of a 17 and a half inch ring, right? So that's one piece. I mean, uh, there's more to it than that, obviously, right? It's, it's a matter of distance over time, but, um, but well, it's being able like to different gear too, right? So to use like mm -hmm. a bike analogy, where wheelchair racing, you have one gear. It's it's why right. it's analogous to running. So you have right. one gear, this push ring, 
and the relationship right. between a 14 and a half, 15 inch push ring to a, a 27 inch wheel right. means that it's kind of like you're in like fifth gear mm-hmm. all the time kind of thing. Right. It's fifth gear right. on the flats, right. it's fifth gear going up, it's fifth gear going down, where Daniel might well be in like third gear uh-huh. kind of thing. So it's easier right. and he climbs like a madman uh, which is not just the push ring by by any means, but no, 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 no. So, so he, um, yeah, and and so, um, so what what we've um, let me see what the um, so if you could, so let's say I have an athlete who is suited for a fourteen and a half inch ring, and and we've we have a the the uh, the measuring point we use is is a measurement from I'll show you my hand is from the knuckle of the middle finger to the head out of the radius so right where the elbow hinges. So we, we take a measurement of, of, of that segment and then we use that as a baseline to determine hand ring size. And, um, um, and so for Daniel, because those, that segment is so long, then we, we can, we know we can put him on a larger hand ring size and he's still able to, to use it effectively. So if someone, someone has a, uh, shorter arms i mean we can still put them on a on an 18 inch hand ring uh, but they're not going to be able to use it very effectively one they're not probably going to be able to uh, uh access the back and the bottom of the ring um, mm-hmm. which is is a, is a key point um but then two what we found is they they just can't produce enough enough linear hand velocity to appropriately apply force to the linear velocity of the rotating hand ring so linear velocity meaning how fast is, is this any point moving in a straight line? And again, I'm not a, phys, I'm, uh, this is not my, I'm just a hack on this stuff. But um, basically what you'll find is for athletes that try to move up in a ring size, they, they just can't keep up with the, the linear speed of the hand ring in a way that allows them to continually apply force that's, that's allowing them to create effective forward propulsion. Um, whereas Daniel can, because he matches up perfectly. It's, it's, it's no different than, uh, an athlete who has, uh, who's suited for 13 inch hand rings being on a 13 inch, 13 inch, uh, um, uh, hand ring on the, on the, the wheel. So, um, hopefully I explained that in a way that, that, oh, no, that it's does, good. does it's make good. some sense. Yeah. It's good. One of the things that I watched with, that he did so well at the trials was, and this is particularly like he went off on his own on the 800. And so he did the turn where you do the turn in your lane and then when he got to the straightaway, you could see that it was just it was just this generation of power. I mean, it was just like coming off. It was just you could see the acceleration, but it wasn't typical of the way that we look at, at wheelchair racers where the elbows come up so much higher mm-hmm. when when you get into that acceleration. You know, when you're accelerating, he literally it just seemed like it happened in the middle of the stroke that he, that he was able to transfer all of the power. So it wasn't like coming from up high and then punching into the, into the ring to get that power. Right. That power right. was created when his hand was already on the ring. Is that, is that fair to say? Is that something that, that is actually true? It is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's on point. And, um, and, and he's, you know, he's noteworthy in that, if you if you watch him pushing at 17 miles an hour, and you watch him pushing at 20 miles an hour, you can't you, there's you can't really tell the difference. I mean, they both look fast, but but uh, uh, actually one of one of his teammates and and uh, competitors, Aaron Pike, we joke about it that uh, uh, the the only the only way I can tell that Daniel's going faster is I see how slow everybody else is going once he accelerates. Otherwise, if you just watch his biomechanics, it, it's uh, there isn't a, a distinct uh, difference between between the two. Um, and you, you, you know, he reminds me of uh, yes, uh, Solo Mendoza, who's the great champion from Mexico. Um, I always I I always see similarities in that when I watch Solo push. Um, and he had a much higher amplitude in his recovery than, than Daniel does just because when his seating position was different, he was using a different type of, of gloves, but where it was the same, um, the velocity was there, but the biomechanics were still very, very smooth. So, so yeah, so, um, uh, and that's, that's one of the key um, uh, 
points that we train and not just Daniel, but with, with all the athletes, um, when I do stroke analysis, I, I really only look at how the hand interfaces with the hand ring, um, with the understanding that there, there's a point in that stroke we call, I call it the power position. And I can move either forward or backward from that position and have a good idea, pretty good idea of, of what the athlete's doing um, and during the rest of, of, of each stroke cycle. Um, and so um, as we've moved into, uh, obviously the, the gloves and the, the chairs and seating position have changed, um, but, but I think notably the, um, the use of, of a particular style of glove has become a little more common, certainly on my team. Uh, certainly on my team, we've, we've gone almost exclusively to a, a glove style that um, positions the, the thumb in this, this position, the fingers in, in this position. And, and, um, and, and that was brought to, to me by, um, by Gude Kim. He's a South Korean athlete who's been here in, in my program. He's a multi-medalist at the Paralympic Games. Um, he was third in the marathon, third in the 1500 in, in Rio. Um, and uh outstanding athlete and, and another great resources. Again, as I say that um, you never stop learning and picking up on, on, on uh, opportunities for improvement. And, and certainly from the standpoint of, of a, of a contact angle on the gloves that is incredibly effective. Um, and we, we, uh, we attribute that to, to the knowledge that's come from, from, uh, from uh, GD, we call him. Good days is his name. We call him GD. Um, but anyways, uh, so this glove style just allows you to interface with the hand ring a little bit differently, um, different than probably than, and I don't know, cause I know you've pushed a little bit more recently, but um, I know for the longest time you used a, a soft mitt um, that, that used a, a flat style of, of pushing and interface the hand with the hand ring. And we've, we've come into where we've used this style, I, I guess you kind of see it. And what it allows you to do is opens up the, the wrist and allows you to be a lot more dynamic in the way you, you apply a force on the hand ring. Um, and so what we key in on, um, so we, we, I used to always teach that when you, when you release the hand ring, the idea is just don't slow it down. Don't put a breaking force on it. You, you've done all this work to make effective, clean contact and then driving around uh, the ring to, to release, just get off the ring quick and clean. Um, but now we've, we've really gone toward the point where we don't just want to get off clean. I want a little bit more force application in the last two to three hours of, of, of the, the stroke. Um, and that I'm comes caught. by virtue of, yeah, yeah, as a reverse clock phase. So we want to try to get really dynamic movement from about six o'clock all the way to eight o'clock on, on the ring. Um, and that comes via this, this, this interface with the glove and the hand ring that allows the wrist to be a lot more mobile and dynamic and, and much more ballistic in terms of how it can interact with the hand ring. Um, uh, not only through the, through the uh, initial um, contact with the ring, but through the driving portion of the ring and, and, uh, and into, into release. Um, and so that, that's a lot of what you see when, when you don't necessarily see a change in the amplitude of the elbows or uh, increase in the separation between the hand and the hand ring. Um, we're just, we're just applying force in a, uh, a little bit differently. That is awesome. And it's amazing just how, just how scientific this, this has become. I mean, it's, it, it is, it is biomechanics. It is, you know, I mean, the glove in a lot of ways, most people assume that, that if you're pushing a wheelchair, that you're grabbing the push ring. And, and if you're grabbing the push ring, you're actually slowing it down to be able to accelerate it. So it's, it's really been mostly a, a tangential kind of, kind of stroke that, that then catches the ring and then comes back around off the back of the ring. And, but, but it sounds like this, and then the catch, the contact with the glove and the ring is so important because mm -hmm. if you're like back with the, with the harness gloves, like the gloves that, that we had used, which were, which were great gloves and, and revolutionary mm -hmm. in their, in their right. time. But Absolutely. what was so important was squeezing in mm -hmm. to maintain the contact. So squeezing in with your, with your pecs or whatever to, to maintain contact with the push ring, which is, which is tiring, right? So, mm -hmm. so what you're trying to do is figure out a way to minimize the muscles that you use and what it sounds like with Daniel that's really interesting is that, that the relaxed nature and the efficiency of it 
allow him to avoid going into that red zone earlier. So when you're talking about the difference between 17 and 20, that you can't tell a difference, he's not going out there and killing himself to go 20 miles an hour. It still looks efficient and not that he's not working a little bit harder, but he's avoiding that red zone which then allows you to sprint off of that speed. Is that, is that some of what you're trying to teach? Yeah. 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 And, and that, that point, it's certainly, certainly a, um, when you move into this position with your fingers and, and really this is the same stroke that they're using in the eighties, frankly. <laughs> so, so we, it's, it's funny how we've come back to in, in some of the earlier days of, of our sport, um, and, and uh, in which this, this point of contact occurs between this knuckle and this knuckle, and then the thumb is, is kind of wrapping around the ring. I mean, that's no different than what we're, we're doing now, which, um, as is the case in, in, in our sport for the most part, um, there's nothing new. <laughs> we're, just, we're just recycling and using, using you know, so it's, it's uh, um, if likely if, if if you see something that's been done before. And I think that's the case for, for this, but, but in a little different way because we're not using a soft glove. Uh, we're using a, a solid um, hand orthotic that uh, positions a hand as, as we desire. Um, but, uh, but to your point, which, which is, is uh, uh, very astute is that with, when, we, when we use this position, we offload the, the flexors of the forearm. So there's less of this movement, right? In terms, because with a flat glove, your, your point of contact with the ring, you're right, is you're squeezing in, right? But really what you're doing is you can kind of dig in on the, a little bit on the inner half of the ring, but mostly what you're doing is, you, is you're pulling the ring with friction between the, uh, the rubber of the glove and the rubber of the hand ring. And um, so not as effective as applying force as if you take these fingers and you lock them up under the ring and now you're driving into something, right? So you're driving into that inner part of the hand ring while you're applying force. And, and so um, not to mention that um, it gives you another two inches of reach. So you effectively increase your hand length by two inches versus with a flag glove, you tend to release right at the base of the thumb right here where my finger's hitting. Um, whereas with, with these gloves, your, your uh, release point ends up being about two inches um, extended off of where that elbow hinges. So, uh, so that's another point of, of, uh, of value. Yeah. Which is, which is a huge deal. Cause you're talking about, you're talking about Daniel who has a, has a wingspan, you know, this seven foot wingspan, but if you can add two inches to your six foot wingspan, the difference between being six foot wingspan and six, two can be a really big thing. And I remember Heinz Fry. I mean, hopefully we don't get too technical. This one might be getting a little bit technical, but Heinz Fry, who was, who, who in some ways was the, it was and is the consensus, like best wheelchair racer out there. And, but it was a really high level injury and sat, you know, pretty much with like his, with his knees around his ears kind of thing. And, but yet he just could go and go and go, but he also right. had, he had his hands extended and was mm -hmm. using some of that plastic, I think, to actually flex the plastic mm -hmm. on the gloves to gain some of that mechanical advantage on the on the plastic, but also gain that gain that distance, that that arm length as well. And just as we're talking about that, Corbin Bow made a made a a comment about uh, remember wrapping uh, batter's gloves or handball gloves, you know, back in the day. And that's kind of what you're talking about going back to, but with far better technology to mm -hmm. build and maintain that structure because those gloves were, you know, you work them in and then they're good. And as soon as you think they're good, then they start breaking down and you have to figure out how to, how to get them back. So you're in something that's, that's far more substantial. What are you doing? What are you doing now? Like you have almost two months between, between now and the games. We had the trials. You had, you had some really successful athletes. I mean, you had somebody like Daniel, who seems like, seems like it would have been great just to go straight into the games from the trials. Uh, you know, Aaron Pike, who looked great. Brian Seaman, who looked great. Uh, Tatiana, who's, who's getting better and better. I mean, it seems like she... She's still, I mean, if you look back at 2016, she could do anything she wanted to, it seemed like. 
mm-hmm. whether it was starting fast, whether it was finishing hard, whether it was climbing, whether it was, you know, everything. And, and she's had a little bit of time off from injury. I understand she's back at, at the U of I, you had mm-hmm. uh, some other Amanda McCrory who, who's had some injuries and some time off and, and is back in real life as well, you know, <laughs> like a working mm-hmm. person, uh, you know, so, so in, and Chelsea McClammer, who, I mean, that was looking back. I mean, I keep going back to that finish, those finishes in the, in the 1500 and the 5,000 in, in Rio, where not only did, did Tatiana, Amanda and Chelsea sweep the medals, but they, 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 not only were they Americans, but they were also from the university of Illinois. What do you guys do between the trials and now to make them prepared? Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really, uh, I mean, this, this last little bit is really a continuation and a final, uh, final point in this, this progress, this process. Um, so we'll, we, we've had a little bit of a bridge week between our, our, uh, trials and then um we'll get a pretty good block of training in um during july in which um you know we'll, we'll dig in a little bit and and uh overload the athletes um and then start start uh unloading and and begin to um uh sharpen and and really just get them ready for for the, for the race and, and i say that we We'll then do a lot of modeling, is what I call race modeling efforts. So trying to to mimic uh, scenarios, situations, and demands that they'll they'll face um, in in races. Whereas, um, and I contrast that to um, our block in the next week. We'll we'll not necessarily we'll be a little more gross in terms of 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 how we're um, structuring the training and designing each each day's session. It will be. Um, a little more of uh, along the lines of of creating some some capacities and and just fine tuning that which they've already built and developed, um, um, and uh, and then uh, then it's really just sharpening in and tuning in and getting getting uh, I guess I just call it locked locked in on on uh, being able to compete and recover and compete and recover. Yeah, and I mean people often talk about it, right? You're talking about sort of sort of getting to the point where, where where you're not doing quite as much and you're just sharpening and people often talk about that the taper right and and it's like you've put mm-hmm. money in the bank and it's gained interest and hopefully hopefully you're able to spend that money when right. when you get to the games uh Bob Molinati said that he's uh, two men that that he respects a lot so so uh just wanted to pass that on to you oh yeah Adam. appreciate that appreciate that yeah yeah, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, um, yeah. And so we'll, you know, we, yeah, I don't, and I don't use, I don't use, uh, you know, a, a traditional taper necessarily rather it's, it's, uh, uh, at least I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily look at like a, a slow, uh, degrading taper or fast, or and I know there's some some different um, strategies involved um, and, and used, but um, but what I found really is that you you uh, you give back the appropriate amount of rest and and ensure that they they have the the tools necessary to compete at their at their best best level. So, um, which oftentimes really means we may we may offload going into the games just to make sure they're, they're at uh, the, the necessary capacity, but, and typically we'll, we'll lock back in with some really higher acute efforts and, um, and get them in, in that mode of, 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 uh, of competing and, and, uh, um, and, and unfortunately just, just being ready to, to um, um, shoulder the, the, uh, the discomfort. And, and as, as you know, well, that, that, uh, um, the, the path from the start line to the finish line often is, is uh, um, has a little bit of pain and suffering involved when, when you're, especially on the track, you know, when, so, um, so that you need to have the mental reserve to be able to be, uh, to tolerate that and be ready to, to tolerate that, to, to reach your goals. Well, which is an interesting thing, right? Because psychologically, I never, I never felt like I tapered well. I never did. I just, uh, you know, cause, cause you kind of psychologically you're thinking, okay, this is a big event. It's really important. And 
I want to feel great. And, and sometimes it's like you want to feel great so much that, that you're, you're resting or you're moving slowly or whatever it is. And, and, you, and you don't feel as great as you think you will. So then you're not going as fast as you imagine you could. Whereas it sounds right. like what you're doing is getting people more into a race type of situation where, mm -hmm. where that's the sharpening part of it. And, and, and it's almost like the body kind of wakes up mm -hmm. when you get right. to that rate. It's like, oh, this is something that I understand. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that's the that's the idea. The idea is to, as best we can, expose them to to um, uh, the stimuli that they'll experience during during race conditions to the extent that you can, to the extent that you can, and, and um, you know until you're in front of a uh, racing in in a, in a stadium and in front of the crowds and and uh, with with that that uh, with those opportunities on the line, that's. That's stuff to replicate, of course, in training. But but you you do you do your best to to um, model that and and uh, prepare the athletes for for that situation so that um, it, it almost becomes unconscious in terms of, of those responses and and, and certainly in, in the races where where strategy is involved. Um, the more you can create uh, and and work on that anticipatory modeling um, in, in training them. And uh, almost like in a game of chess, they, they can recognize the environment and, and respond appropriately to that. So, so we, we try to do that. And, and we're fortunate in, in, in Champaign because of, of the, the, the density of, of athletes that we have in terms of quality and depth that, that we can simulate a lot of these things that in other environments you just, you can't do it because you don't have the bodies to do it or the, the skill set. So we're, we're just so fortunate to have, have that here. Um, and, and in which case we, we can, we can better, better prep those athletes for it. So. And I, I've talked to Scott Hollenbeck, whom you mentioned earlier, who is one of the greatest technicians and probably the most passionate person about, about the sport that I know. And, uh, and he talked about back in the day where, you know, Marty would get out on the hand cycle and be able to get them up to 20 miles an hour or whatever. And then, would throw somebody at him who would, who would bump him from behind or get him off his line or whatever. And, and, and that's part of, and obviously, you know, you know, Scott, who's a guy who, who like, the more you throw at him, the more he likes it. And mm -hmm. he goes, Oh yeah, I'm bumping. And, and I think you guys used to coach back in Atlanta, coach some kids back in Atlanta. And, and he was talking about getting into, getting into the pack with those kids and, and bumping them from behind them. Oh, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's like, well, this right. is, you're going to experience it. Be ready. And, and are you creating those kinds of scenarios? Cause I also remember, you know, Marty talking about, uh, you know, calling you to the line and then holding you at the line, you know, mm -hmm. and, and like, okay, back up. And it's like, I mean, I watched the, uh, the able-bodied trials, the Olympic trials from, from Eugene. And what was it? I think it was, the, I think it was the hurdles where they had like, six false starts in a row where it wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the, the mechanism wasn't, wasn't triggering. Right. It was, there was some sort of a glitch in the technology, you know, you know right. Okay. Hold on. Like I, I trained mm -hmm. for this race. I didn't train to do six starts and right. then do the race. Are you, right. are you bringing them through, which sounds like hazing in some ways, but it's all for their <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, we, we do, um, We'll do different different drills that um, simulate pack pack environments in which the athletes have to um, run off different situations and respond to attacks off the back and and uh, yeah and those are always fun days where you, where you just you you take a baseline speed that's that's not overly difficult for anyone and and uh, and then you have athletes. Um, attack off the back and then and with the idea that you can't attack until you see their front wheel and, and things of that nature or um you know maybe the drill would be let's box whoever in and, and it's, it's their goal to to uh, find a, a fair and, and a safe way to to the finish line um yeah yeah those, those are always those are always fun those are always fun days um, um but uh but yeah do, do you so yeah, Mar Marty used to, uh, and he was he was a master at it. That we would we would uh, as we got closer to competition, 
we would just sit and wait and wait and wait to do whatever, if we're going to do a 400 and, um, you know, the point of, I mean, it's torture, right? You're just, one, you know, you, you have the anticipation that it's just going to hurt. Right. So it's going to, so you're, you're, you're thinking about that. And then yeah, too much time to think. Yeah. Too much time to think. Yeah. So, um, I will say, I will admit that, um, I'm pr- I, I don't do that <laughs> to be honest because we do a little bit of rest, but <clears throat> no, I don't, I, I don't do it. Uh, yeah. As, as much. Um, and I, I, I likely should, but I just, I just think back to those, those practices when, when, uh, yeah, I mean, he know he knew what he was doing. Cause uh, you know, that's what you, that's what you face at the games. It's uh warm up and then 45 minutes of waiting around the call room and under the, the, the stadium and and um so but yeah. uh but you you know you you know we we prep them in uh for that and, and do some other things i mean we'll we'll do 10 minutes of uh, just hanging out um or, or thereabouts but um yeah but uh but certainly in so far as moving them in, in uh into situations where they're able to um respond in a way of this low, low energy cost. And it's, it's, uh, uh, predictive because it's, it's happened to them before. Um, and, uh, and I will say too, I'll add too that a lot of this stuff, I don't have to engineer. It, it happens organically, uh, just through whatever training session we're, we're engaged in on the track. Um, many of these, many of these things happen because it's racing and it's, and it's hard training. And these athletes are, are, uh, applying a maximum intention of effort um, on the days that they're, they're prescribed to, to do so. And um, which I think to me is the purest uh, way of, of creating these, these uh, uh, skills and, and, uh, and habits is, is just being the, the organic um, uh, development and manifestation of it during, during the day-to-day training. Um, and again, I just point again back to the fact that we're we're so fortunate to have a critical mass of very talented athletes that are athletes that are able to train together on a day to day basis, and and uh, and there's always somebody just a little bit faster than than you, and uh, um, you know, and and, uh, um, and some days that's that's my uh, my assistant coach on a on a hand bike, <laughs> so for some athletes, but but there's always an opportunity to extend yourself a little bit. And, and so really it's, uh, the, uh, part of the, the most challenging, uh, part of, of coaching is ensuring that the athletes don't extend themselves too much in a way that I, that I, that I, uh, that I don't intend them to, um, because really they, they would just bang their heads into the ground and just dig a hole and dig a hole and dig a hole because, uh, well, that's just their, their nature, um, the, the athletes that, that train here. So. Yeah, hard work um, so makes them go faster. So you have to be. Yeah, it's just like, right, right. And, and I think, you know, the, the longer that they're um, in the program, you know, they, they come to understand that that's really not, that's really not the essence of, of skill acquisition and development is, is uh, it's doing it in a way that aggregates quality effort over an extended period of time. And, um, and really, and I, and I, I circle back to the point of, of tapering is that, um, is that we, we I, I teach that and instill them in that as a habit is that it's, um, you know, we're, we're going to create high quality efforts that over uh, two years to four years to six years to eight years to 10 years will accumulate into development and growth. And, uh, um, and, and, and with, with an understanding that if, uh, if you have aspirations to be on the podium um, or in the finals of, of a games, um, you, know, you can look at eight to 12 years, depending on, on your classification and, and, uh, and your training, training age. So, um, so it's a long, it's a long-term vision and, and, uh, um, which really is then why the, the stress, uh, is always in the process and, and, uh, enjoying, enjoying getting out every day and seeing it as an opportunity to work toward your goal. Uh, even if that means on that day you rest and that's, that's the most effective way to, to move forward toward whatever it is you're, you're hoping to, to achieve. Um, uh, but it, but it has to be a part of, of, of the, the data process and, 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 and a life habit. Yeah. And it's, it's gotta be interesting too, right? Because I mean, we've talked about some of the, some of the dominant athletes, like, like 
Daniel Tatiana, who is 17 Paralympic medals, right? 17, am I getting that right? I think. That's correct. Uh, yeah. yeah. Susanna Scaroni, who's who's coming up, up and who's who's been really, really good, but it but is certainly showing a, a great prominence on the track mm -hmm. right now as well. Raymond Martin, right. who's been great in the in the T52 class. Uh, and you have a wide range of classes as well. So you're talking about there's mm -hmm. always somebody who's a little bit faster who can who can push you a little bit further. You've got a right. what is it? Alexa Halko is there mm -hmm. now, right? Who uh, who is just I mean she burst onto the scene in 2016 at the trials mm -hmm. and right. just just is absolutely amazing. But but also has has some challenges within the world, right? I mean, trying to, trying to sort of break down that, that British wall of, uh, of, of mm -hmm. athletes too. How are right. you, how are you helping those athletes? You know, cause one of the things is going from being like a, like training on your own to suddenly mm -hmm. training on the team. How do you, how do you make that work and be able to, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of make it work so that it's beneficial for, for all the athletes and so that it challenges them in a way that they gain, new skills that, that then they can put to use? Um, well, I think that, um, that's, uh, um, my, my goal when I, when I came on board in 2005 was, was to create a, an environment that was conducive to, uh, and, uh, um, and to be quite honest with you, a lot of times that is means that I just get out of the way and I'm, I'm quiet and, and I, I create the appropriate constraints in the training environment and allow the athletes to adapt and, 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 uh, um, and meet whatever demands that I'm, I'm uh, placing on them and, and uh, whatever I've prescribed as far as the training. Um, in which case that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a linear proc, uh, process to improvement. Oftentimes there's some, some uh, steps backward, but, um, uh, but in the, on the macro level, if, if we see, continuous improvement. I mean, that, that's the performance curve. Um, and, and so, um, what I've, uh, uh, uh what I've tried to do is, is almost, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's along the lines of this theory called emerging complexity. And, and it's, you can, you see it in, in the ant kingdom, um, in which, uh, you create local motivations. So motivations that are very, very, uh, uh, tangible and, and close. Um, and in doing so, you create macro behavior. So if you think about ants, I do, I mean, they're, they're not very smart, <laughs> right? So, but if you watch from afar, it looks like they're incredibly organized. What they're doing and, and, and uh, receiving directives, but, but they're not, they're just, they're uh, following the, the trails that are accidentally. And it's just, you know, based on probability, you end up with something that looks really, um, organized and and but on, on the the uh, micro level it's not so um yeah sorry that's a little bit in the woods but that uh it's not expecting you to come up with an, an but that's my is is this yeah but that, some of the thought? <laughs> sounds like something that scott might have turned you on to oh uh, no actually no actually not this is just the uh uh um <laughs> just in, in reading and understanding human behavior and, and uh, motivation and, and creating, um, creating organic development um, without being overly, one, because that's not my style is to be um, overly loud or, or um, instructive and, and demanding. Um, one, because I didn't, I never respond to that as an athlete. And, and oftentimes I, I coach as I, as I prefer to be coached, which is, um, uh, uh, let me know what the workout is, and and then from there I'll 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 take care of the rest, and and I'll learn along the way, and, and that's what that's what I do for the athletes, and and that's not to say that that there's not feedback and and constraints put in place to direct the athletes and and in the in the uh, direction that you want them to to move, but but it also is very uh, laissez-faire and, and and hands off, and allowing the athletes to explore and understand and and. Uh, and, and make mistakes, make mistakes. I, I think if, if we perceive a sport as, as, as um, more broadly a vehicle to gaining understanding of who you are as a human being, but um, there really is, is no better opportunity than to make some mistakes and, and recalibrate and, and, and much like 
when you're learning how to shoot a bow and arrow and you, you know, you miss the mark, but as you gain skill acquisition, um, you may make fewer and fewer mistakes, but those always recalibrate you closer to the bullseye. And that's, that's really what, what I think um, the, the beauty and value of sport is too, is that, that we can create these uh, uh, really empowered and, and uh, use characteristics of, of uh, the most noble characteristics of sport to create really good people. And uh, that, uh, that will help others and, and uh, you know, move, move the, move the ball forward. Well, that's always been a part of your program, right? That it's, it's about going fast, but it's also much more about the athlete, about the person, about the community. And, and, and obviously, I mean, I saw that, I remember going to my first camp at the U of I and just seeing a, a sense of one sharing, sharing all the information that you guys had accumulated, right? That you're, you're out there doing testing. You have so many athletes that the one you have, you have a great opportunity to, to see how training is affecting different people and how they're reacting, but also just like you're talking about creating a standard in terms of the push ring where you're measuring from your knuckle to the, to the, to the head of your, or the bend of your elbow. Uh, you know, I, that's, for me, that's that's the first time I'd heard that. You know, for me, it had always been kind of like, well, let's see how this one works and see if we go a little bit faster and go. I, I always pushed 15 inch push rings, you know, and, and so I think I'd gone down to 14 at some point trying to get a little bit more top end speed. And and maybe then I'd gone back up to 15 and you've got the start, you've got the the top end and all these things. So you're trying to figure out how it's all going to, to work together. But how do you... How do you, you know, what, what's the thought when you bring an athlete into the program or an athlete joins the program? What's the, what's, what's the message that you're giving them on the holistic side of things? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, certainly we, we honor our sport and our competitors by competing to win and and would, would, uh, would be, uh, would run counter to that philosophy. Um, but we also uh, understand that that uh, medals and, and road wins it's it's all ephemeral and and uh, and uh, um, and there there are things that are of more substance and value than than that and, and so um, I hope that I, I don't have a, a sit down discussion and say hey this is what my philosophy is um, to any of the incoming freshmen. Uh, for me, rather, it's it's a lived experience, and and that is just that is the nature of our program. It is it is that, and always has been, um, and it manifests itself in in that way. And and you see that, um, um, and, you know, and, and some athletes um, respond and uh, are a little more um, and immediately, but but at some point um, they they understand they understand, and, and a lot of that has to do with with the value of having athletes that are that are senior and um, have been in the system for for years and and can bestow that knowledge and experience upon upon them. And, and uh, um, but uh, um, but but I think I think that that's that's it. Is is my perspective always is that it's it's uh, is to keep. Paralympic sport in its appropriate perspective and, and understand the real value, which, um, you know, uh, you know, for me, it, it's uh, competing was always about the camaraderie and, and, and spending time with, with, uh, with my peers and, and with people like you and, and Scott and Jacob Highville and, and, and those camps we'd have in warm Springs. And, and uh, those are the memories that are, are so valuable. Um, I don't remember the Paralympic Games, but but uh, it's it's those it's those experiences in the way that that those those friendships and and uh, people impacted me and and made me uh, allowed me to to move forward and become a better human being is is really the I mean that's the essence and and that's that's uh, hopefully that and and I think it is I think that's how we run run our program and and uh, um, and and live live that experience every day. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. And it's interesting to have retired from the sport. And, and people think, well, what do you, what do you miss? And of course, you're, you're going to miss, like, 
the glamour of, of winning and being at the games. And it really, if you think about it, it's sort of like those, those camps at warm Springs where it's you're, you're on two a days and, and you're out there and, and you're with your buddies and you're, and you're busting it every day. And, and that to me, those are the moments that, that I miss the most of, of all of the things that we did, because that's when, I mean, a couple of things are happening. One, like you're, 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 you're with your friends, you're going hard, but, or a few things, but, but then that's also where you're making your changes too, where you're continuing to grow as an athlete. And to me, that's, that's one of the things that was really cool. But as you're talking as well, one of the things that I love about the, the sort of laissez-faire attitude of coaching is that one, that's kind of hard. I mean, sometimes it can be, it can often be more difficult to say less than to say more. But two, I think what you're doing is you're helping the athletes to own their own journey, their own where they're going in their, in, in their progression and, and not necessarily being reliant on a coach of, hey, Adam, tell me what I need to do so that I can go faster. Looking at what's going on with the University of Illinois, one of the things is that they have, they've taken such a scientific approach to a sport that that really needs a scientific approach that that it's about the efficiency of your stroke it's about maximizing your strength maximizing your time on the ring and and so there's the the part of the fitness and then then there's also and, and as he said with training with covid that they did they did a lot more training where where the athletes were were sort of stretching themselves where they were breaking themselves down a little bit more because they didn't have the races in between, but they're creating that, that fitness and that strength that then will be benefited in the future. And, and right now in the interim, the thing that's so important is being able to, to sharpen that, to sharpen it, to, to get race ready. A benefit of having a lot of people on the track is that you're used to having a lot of people on the track. One of the shocks for a lot of athletes is that if you've just been training on your own, suddenly you're in a pack, you're going 20, 20 plus miles an hour going into a turn and you smell the burning rubber of somebody's tire hitting the frame of somebody in front of them. And it might be two, three wide and you're trying to figure out, okay, what can I do here when everybody else can go as fast as I can? What are the strategies? And so that's a lot of what they're doing now is that is figuring out what are those strategies? What's it like when I'm boxed? What's it like when I'm all the way at the back of the pack? When, when you go to a games, like some of these athletes will not have gone to a big games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, right. do you, how do you prepare them mentally emotionally for the journey from leaving, leaving home, flying all the way to Tokyo, which is a really long flight or a couple of pretty long flights, getting to the village, processing uh, people there. I mean, there's so many other protocols having to, having to go through mag and bag, you know, the security to get into the village, to get into the track, having the credential. How do you, how do you prepare athletes for that? And can you, can you, can you find a way that they can enjoy that process so that they're going to perform at their best? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And other than, than talking them through that process and, and uh, explaining what to expect, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, you can't really. It, it's hard to replicate that. So, um, I I just stress that that that's a big part of the first games or or even a, a world championships is that it's uh, getting that boots on the ground experience that that uh, of, of I think it's it's all of that plus it's it's um, going through the warm up process and going to the call room and, and sitting and then moving under the stadium and, and sitting and then jumping out on the track and, and, uh, you know, depending on the year you had a, a stadium full of, of, uh, 70,000 plus people. And when does that happen? <laughs> and then you have your wheelchair track event other than uh, at the Paralympic games. And, and so, um, so I think that you, you stress the, the, uh, the opportunity to enjoy the, the process and, and, uh, 
and again, those are experiences. I, I you know, I, I remember the first time that I went through that process, and 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 um, um, and and some of the the more recent ones too. Um, you know, those 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 stick out, and and uh, I think are are equally important or as important as as the the uh, competition between the gun and, and the finish line. It is. You can be exhausted by the time you get to the starting line based on mm-hmm. what you've done. And, oh, well, I want to right. be a tourist. And fan- I mean, luckily you, I mean, not to say luckily, but one element that you won't have is, is really the families, right? Because the families mm-hmm. won't be, won't be in Tokyo. So, so, so right. people won't have that responsibility of entertaining friends and family who've come to watch them when, when they're really trying to do their job. You right now, I mean, we've talked a lot about your athletes. We've talked about your capacity as a coach, but you continue to compete as an athlete as well. Will you do some marathons this, this fall after you get back? Um, yeah, I don't like lean. I've, 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 uh, I've a uh, little disconnected from, from that in the last few years. And, uh, so, um, yeah, not, not in the fall, but, um, yeah, maybe, maybe in the, in the near, near future, <laughs> near future. The last one I did the Disney marathon a couple of years ago and that was, that was fun. That was one of the first marathons that I had ever competed in, in, uh, 96, I believe. And, uh, and I never finished it because I crashed halfway through, um, I was chasing down Chantel Petitclair. Um, and I, this is my first year race and I hadn't even, I, I hadn't gotten to the University of Illinois yet. So I knew nothing about nothing um, in respect to the sport. But uh, um, anyways, yeah, I crashed. So, so that was always on one of my goals was to, to finish that doggone race. And uh, so I did that um, a couple of years back. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, but I enjoy it. I, I think that, um, uh, among all the activities that, that I, I do to try to stay, stay healthy. Um, you know, to, to me, the, the elegance and, and the artistry of, of, um, wheelchair racing can't be matched by, by any other, any other sport. And, and obviously I'm biased in, in that respect, in that respect, but, um, but I, I enjoy just the, 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 uh, the interface between the hand and the hand ring and that, that, uh, it's really, really, um, uh, it's, it's just an essence and, and a real feel of, of the wheel, um, in a way that, uh, is very rewarding. Yeah. It's, it's immensely beautiful. I mean, as you said, in artistry, there, there is a beauty to wheelchair racing with the assumption though, that you're fit because, because the more fit <laughs> you are, the, the, the more beautiful it looks. Uh, the less fit yeah. you are, the less beautiful it looks. Uh, but you also, I mean, just this is, it's funny that you're talking about the marathons and having to fin- having to go back to Disney to chase, well, not to chase Chantel down this time, but, but to complete that. But you did a marathon back, your first marathon was what, like nine months after your accident? Is that right? Yeah, it was, uh-huh. it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty soon after, um, yeah, my my uh, spinal cord injury. Um, yeah, I and mean, I was fortunate to have a great great support uh, great support network around with my family and and uh, and my now wife and um, and 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 that was uh, I didn't wait around long to to get back and, and engage with uh, first first just just uh, fitness and, and health and wellness and, and training and and um, yeah I, I remember the first time I'd, I'd, I'd gotten, I moved back in with my parents after, um, my, uh, accident and just the first time I, you know, I was really sweating and, and, you know, hurting a little bit and it'd been a while cause you, you know, you just kind of do PT and walk around and brace and that type of thing. But, uh, um, and that, and that was an anchor point for me. I mean, that was, that was a, uh, a carryover from, from pre-spinal cord injury that really, uh, anchored me back into to my identity and, and, um, and, uh, and to fill that, that competitive gap, um, uh, to, to do that in racing was and, and, and marathoning initially for me, I, I really just enjoyed the, the, the time being out, out on the, uh, the County blacktops of, of North Iowa at the time and, and training and just, just, uh, going through that process. So, um, 
Yeah, and then from there, you, you just you, you, I, I, um, I think I did three mara- three marathons. Yeah, I crashed my first Chicago marathon, finished, and uh, still finished though. Got up, yeah, and finished. yeah. Finished, this is back yeah. to your your bloody. You know, it's like yeah, okay, so I just thought that was normal. I've actually done something. <laughs> right, I just thought that was normal to crack your helmet, but uh, yeah. So I finished that, and then I did. Like I said I think I did. Well, I did Columbus Marathon, and I did a marathon in Dallas, and I did Disney, and yeah, at that time you just chopped at the bit to do as much as you can you can do, and and uh, um, and that was, uh, and then I then I was fortunate enough that uh, I was able to transfer out to Champaign and and uh, finish my undergrad at the University of Illinois, and uh, learned a little bit more about <laughs> about the sport. Tried to stay upright a little bit more as well. I'd more imagine. often, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Adam, <laughs> thanks so much for for sharing your story with us. This is, I mean, it's it's so cool to hear how quickly you came from your accident to getting back into marathons, and we're not deterred by ending up on the pavement. Got back up, kept going, but then also leading leading so many athletes and having the, you know, I've always I've always. Uh, watched you and, and thought that you had the the supreme confidence to be able to to not have to say something mm. and uh and and it's great and it's great that that's part of your coaching so yeah i appreciate that thanks that means a lot yeah well thank you for joining us and and good luck and i hope to make it out to champagne sometime in the interim between now and when we get to games to be able to check it out and see what's going on. I'm not sure if I'll bring my racing chair or not this time. I'll, have to... <laughs> I'll, do it. I'll go out with you if you do. <laughs> you'll, get out, you'll get out with me. Okay. Okay. That'll be yeah, a good yeah. idea. Those gloves yeah. do sound great though, too. I'm yeah, really yeah. About that. yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. We'll show you. So yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. That'd be great fun. Well, thanks a ton. Good luck and Thank best you. of luck to all the athletes. I look forward to seeing all of them on the on the big screen there and uh, and going fast so thank you and thanks you're welcome and thanks to all of you for joining us we really appreciate it i realize we did have a little bit of a glitch hopefully you got a chance to to glean a lot from from adam's wisdom here and and to me it was it was an exciting ride through wheelchair racing through the minutia sometimes of wheelchair racing through the the holistic version of wheelchair racing which is all about going fast so really appreciate it the greatest compliment that you can pay us is to tell your friends tell your friends to tune in to check this out this will be on the one revolution page so if you didn't get a chance to see the whole thing you can go to the one revolution page and watch it it'll be archived right there We will also turn it into a podcast. So it'll be on YouTube. It'll be on Spotify. It'll be on Apple. And we'd love for you to like us and follow us. And we'll continue to get great people to join. So Adam, thanks again. Thank you. Good luck. Go fast.